This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Pray with me. Speak, Lord. We are here to listen. Amen. You can be seated. Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Just this week, as I was preparing for this sermon, I came across a social media post from an outspoken atheist that read, What will it take for me to believe in God? Evidence. Big font. Falsifiable empirical evidence. Not theological claims or assertions. Not ancient mythical texts. Not anecdotal personal experiences. Not abstract philosophies. No, I require evidence. And there is no such evidence for a God. In some ways, I don't blame this guy. I mean, really, faith, holding on to something that you can't see or prove, is a really difficult thing. What struck me this week was that here this guy is, centuries and worlds apart, making the exact same demand as Thomas the disciple. Unless I see it with my own eyes and touch it with my own hands, I will not believe. All of us, I imagine, have at some point reckoned with the idea of faith, of trusting, holding on to something that we cannot physically see, believing ourselves to be part of this story that we cannot prove. Our gospel story today is famous for a reason, because it gets at that core question. Thomas's desire for reality, for proof he could touch and see, And if we're honest, that's a core question for us as well. Did these things really happen? Is Jesus really who the Bible says he is? Is this Easter story really the hope for the world? Because if not, it's really hard out here believing that it is, isn't it? I want to take a closer look at this encounter between Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and his disciples. And it's my hope that as we do, that the Lord has something for you this morning, wherever you are on this journey of faith. What we have in our gospel story is actually two stories that parallel one another, that are similar in many ways, two visitations of Jesus to his disciples. They both occur on Sunday evenings, the first Easter, the day of Christ's resurrection, in exactly one week after. Both times when the disciples are gathered together, we read that the doors were shut tight Yet Jesus somehow came and stood among them, in the midst of them. And in both stories, Jesus offers the exact same greeting, peace be with you. And he shows the disciples his hands and his side, proof that he really is the same human being they just saw put to death by crucifixion days before. And importantly, both stories end with an eye toward who was not present for these events and invites a response. 
So during the first gathering, we read that the disciples were behind closed doors and their fear is understandable. The leader of their movement had just been publicly executed for presumed political and religious agendas and the dust had far from settled. They were afraid and who knows what they were doing together, maybe praying, but suddenly here is Jesus in the flesh. Imagine the shock. And Jesus then performs this mysterious sign. We read that he commissions them, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And he breathes the Holy Spirit on them. This moment itself is worthy of its own sermon, and I will have to set it aside for today. But what can be said concisely is that this is a commissioning Just as the Father sent the Son to be good news to the world, to be the seed planted for the kingdom of God, so the disciples are sent out, empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. All this happened during that first gathering on the first Resurrection Sunday. But then the story turns its attention towards someone who missed it. We read, But Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. Where on earth was he? One scholar notes that surely the first moral of the story is get thee to church on time. But Thomas is nowhere to be found, and so he misses this earth-shattering, life-changing experience the other disciples have just had. So how does he respond when he hears about it? Apparently, it's too big a hurdle to just take this information secondhand for Thomas unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of his nails in my hand in his side, I can't get there. We jump ahead a week, and I'm awfully curious about what happened during those seven days in between, but John brings us again to the same house, all the disciples gathered together with the doors shut tight, and again, here's Jesus in the flesh. Is this going to be a weekly thing? He offers the same blessing of peace, and then he turns right to Thomas. What was Thomas feeling when Jesus immediately addressed him? Clearly he knows. Is he feeling embarrassed? Probably some shame? Or maybe overcome by relief that this thing he was afraid to be true was actually true after all? And Jesus doesn't condemn Thomas. In fact, Jesus accommodates to him graciously. He addresses his doubt directly. Jesus wants Thomas to believe. He says, here, see my wounds. Feel them, touch them. Know that this is really me. Do not doubt, Thomas, but believe. And Thomas's answer says everything. My Lord and my God. Now Thomas has made it. He's reunited with the other disciples as eyewitnesses of the risen Lord. Now he is sure. And then, as in the first story, the attention turns to those who were absent from this gathering. The disciples are all accounted for this time, though, so who are we talking about? Who is not present? Verses 28 to 31 read, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Then John, the gospel narrator, picks it up. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, 
These are written so that you, you, may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. So Thomas was absent from that first meeting, and the disciples ran to tell him. Now, leaving from this second meeting, it's as if the disciples are running to tell you, to tell us. John breaks the fourth wall here. He looks to camera outside the text and saying, this is for you. These are written so that you may believe and have life. This gives me hope. It gives me hope because it shows me that Jesus knows that faith is not an easy thing. He knows and he makes provision for us. In fact, he offers a special blessing for us, us Christians living generations apart from those who saw the resurrected Lord firsthand. One commentator referred to Jesus' words of blessing as a sort of beatitude, another declaration of God's favor and outpouring of himself onto a specific people. If you recall the Beatitudes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, you might remember that most of those receiving blessing are not those that conventionally look blessed. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the merciful, the persecuted. Yet they are the people God blesses, who he looks with favor upon and pours out the gift of his presence onto. And now we hear these familiar words in a different setting. Jesus declares that blessed are those who have not seen, yet have come to believe. As I've studied this story in preparation for today, what has become evident to me is that what I was in need of most was not like principles or insight, but just to hear and receive Christ's words of blessing to know that he sees me struggling at times to have faith. I need to hear again that this story we believe in, this God that we claim became human and died for the sins of the world and rose on the third day and offers everlasting life, as absurd as that all sounds, that it's true, even though I haven't seen it with my own eyes. More and more, I want Peter's words to be true of me that we just read earlier this morning. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. But maybe that's not enough for where you are this morning. What if faith in things unseen from where you stand is just a little bit too far of a reach? Maybe you'd be open to belief if there was something you could really experience and grab onto. Maybe you feel like Thomas. Unless I see and touch, I can't get there. Or maybe this feels all, all feels unworkable to you because of what you can see. Maybe what's most visible to you are not the effects of the resurrection, but the brokenness of the world. Incurable disease, relationships ridden with conflict, the sting of death and oppression. Maybe from your vantage point, Christians seem just as miserable and tossed about by circumstances as anyone else. With all this brokenness in our line of sight, 
Are we really saying that this resurrection story is the singular hope for the world? And if so, then where is it? If that's where you are, it is an understandable place to be. What gives me great hope is that when I falter, when I'm not sure, Jesus' posture towards me is the same as his posture toward Thomas, and that is one of grace. Jesus doesn't accuse Thomas. He doesn't shame. He doesn't even say, where were you last week when I showed up the first time? Which would have been a fair question to ask. Jesus instead accommodates himself to Thomas. He answers Thomas's doubt, his fear, and he replaces it with faith. I picture Thomas just dropping to his knees in this moment as he declares, my Lord and my God. This is the most explicit naming of Jesus as God in the entire four Gospels. And it's just come from the mouth of one who moments before wasn't sure he believed any of it. It seems to me that John, the Gospel writer, was quite purposeful in including this story in his book. Because we need to hear it. We need to realize that we are not the only ones who feel like we can't muster faith at times who falter when it looks like evidence is to the contrary. Thomas did too, and look at how the Lord met him. To quote a commentator in Frederick Dale Bruner, he writes that Thomas's requirement of tactile proof serves us because it is exactly what we ourselves deeply crave. Did this really happen? Thomas's desire is every honest person's desire. And we are so grateful that John, the gospel writer, gave Doubting Thomas this space and that the risen Lord gave him this satisfaction. And the myriad of stories and things that Jesus said and did that didn't make it into this book, as John himself admits, it's significant that we are given this encounter between Thomas and Jesus. It's for us. It's for you who haven't had the opportunity to see the wounds in Jesus' body ourselves, to serve as a testimony, a witness for us. When I was a student in Bible college, I went through a significant crisis of faith. I experienced a doubt and despair that was more devastating and cut far deeper than I ever thought possible. And it lasted for years for most of the time that I was a student in Bible college preparing for a life of ministry. It was the first time in my life that I considered that God might not love the world, and that thought scared me to death. What if everyone is left on their own? What if all of this suffering has no ending, has no happy ending, has no resolution, no justice? It was overwhelming for me. I felt sure God existed, but no longer sure that I could trust his character. I spent so many hours, day and night, crying out in prayer and protest to God. I pleaded, I begged for just one sign, one movement from him to prove to me that he is real and that he is good. Like one, one inch of a feeling in my heart and I would be there, God. Just give me something. And I got nothing in response. It was radio silence on the other end. As I sought out counsel from 
professors and mentors that I trusted who were so kind as they sat and listened with me. One conversation with my preaching professor gave me pause. She asked me what I needed in order to believe that God is good. I told her, I don't even care, like a nudge, a word, a feeling, something outside of myself to prove to me that this is all real and that my entire life as a Christian hasn't been a sham. And she told me this, and I will never forget it. She suggested that I must not be taking the cross very seriously. She told me, Jess, if you want proof that God loves the world, why aren't you looking for it in the one place that he has shown it most holy and most clearly? Why are you not looking for it in Jesus' self-sacrifice, his death and resurrection? Why would a word or a nudge from God privately in your dorm room be worth more than that? He has proven himself. and He invites you to believe, Jess, and he doesn't owe you a personal inner confirmation. I, like Thomas, longed to see before I would believe, before I would surrender. But my professor was right. God didn't owe me that. He has more than proven himself, and yet I insisted that I needed more. Here and now, something to hold on to, as if the testimony of the scriptures and the historic Christian faith were not enough, but this feeling of proof would be. In the many months that followed, the Lord did gently invite and coax me back to true faith. But it wasn't by that inner word or that sense of confirmation that I had wanted. It was by a twofold testimony, the witness of the scriptures and the witness of the church. Through these two testimonies, I learned how to have faith anchored in God's love for the world shown fully and completely through the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and bolstered by the faith of the community. I learned why we need to be surrounded by the great cloud of witnesses, because even when I can't see God's goodness or his movement in the world, maybe you can, and you can tell me about it. My brothers and sisters can often identify where the Holy Spirit is moving, where healing and goodness and restoration are happening in ways better than I can. When my faith feels frail, I can lean on theirs. The scriptures are written so that you might believe, and the community is given to you to hold you up when that faith is not enough. I don't presume that this settles every question. I don't think for faith to be real, every question has to be settled. But if you've ever felt at all like me, or like our dear brother Thomas, who just couldn't make that hurdle of belief without seeing it first, know that you are not alone, and you are not being asked to just believe blindly or to have faith completely apart from any evidence. There is good, credible testimony of God's goodness in the scriptures and in the world. And while there is much to grieve, much suffering that raises so many questions, the kingdom of God is here, not loudly strong-arming its way to victory, but like a seed, like lots of seeds that have been planted and are bearing fruit. And they really are 
bearing fruit. If you can't see it, ask those around you where they do. Come to church. Come to church on time. Be here in the gathering of Christians where Christ promised that he would be as we sing, pray, learn scripture, break bread together. Let the living Christ, as the only one who can, draw you into deeper faith. This is Christ's blessing, his favor upon you as one who has not yet seen but is coming to believe. By believing, may you have life in his name. Alleluia.